Section 10 of The Rhythm of Life and Other Essays by Alice Maynell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Pathos. A fugitive writer wrote but lately on the fugitive page of a minor magazine. For our part, the drunken tinker, Christopher Sly, is the most real personage of the piece, and not without some hints of the pathos that is worked out more fully, though by different ways. In Bottom and Malvolio, has it indeed come to this? Have the zeitgeist and the weltsmirch and the other things compared to which Lispleen was gay done so much for us? Is there to be no laughter left in literature free from the preoccupation of a sham real life? So it would seem, even what the great master has not shown us in his work, that your critic convinced of pathos is resolved to see in it. By the penetration of his intrusive sympathy, he will come at it. It is of little use now to explain Snug the joiner to the audience. Why? It is precisely Snug who stirs their emotion so painfully. Not the lion. They can see through that. But the Snug within. The human Snug. And the master shallow has the veltsmirch in that latent form which is the more appealing. And discouraging questions arise as to the end of old double. And Argon in his nightcap is the tragic figure of monomania and human nature shudders at the petrification of the intellect of Mr. F.'s aunt, et patati et patata. It may only be too true that the actual world is, with pathos delicately edged, for Malvolio living we should have had living sympathies. So much aspiration, so ill-educated a love of refinement, so unarmed a credulity, noblest of weaknesses, betrayed for the laughter of a chambermaid. By an actual bottom the weaver, our pity might be reached for the sake of his single self-reliance, his fancy and resource condemned to burlesque and ignominy by the niggard doom of circumstance. But is not life one thing, and is not art another? Is it not the privilege of literature to make selection and to treat things singly, without the afterthoughts of life, without the troublous completeness of the many-sided world? Is not Shakespeare, for this reason, our refuge? Fortunately, unreal is his world when he will have it so, and there we may laugh with open heart at a grotesque man, without misgiving, without remorse, without reluctance. If great creating nature has not assumed for herself, she has assuredly secured to the great creating poet the right of partiality, of limitation, of setting aside and leaving out, of taking one impression and one emotion as sufficient for the day. Art and nature are separate, complementary, in relation, not in confusion, with one another. And all this officious cleverness in seeing round the corner, as it were, of a thing presented by literary art in the flat. The borrowing of similes from other arts is of evil tendency, but let this pass, as it is apt. Is but another sign of the general lack of a sense of the separation between nature and the sentient mirror in the mind. In some of his persons, indeed, Shakespeare is as nature herself, all-inclusive, but in others, and chiefly in comedy. He is partial, he is impressionary, he refuses to know what is not to his purpose, he is an artist. And in that gay, willful world it is that he gives us, or used to give us, for even the world is obsolete, the pleasure of oubliants. Now this fugitive writer has not been so swift, but that I have caught him a clout as he went. Yet he will do it again, and those like-minded will assuredly also continue to show how much more completely human how much more sensitive, how much more responsible, is the art of the critic than the world has ever dreamt till now. And, superior in so much, 
they will still count their superior weeping as the choicest of their gifts and lepidus who loves to wonder can have no better subject for his admiration than the pathos of the time it is bred now of your mud by the operation of your son tis a strange serpent and the tears of it are wet end of section 10 recording by valentina vicelli